Welcome to Axios Pro Rata, a podcast that takes just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Pramack. On today's show, President Trump says we'll all become much poorer if he's impeached, and why you soon may have to pay more for an aisle seat on a plane. But first, hacking the electric grid. Now, almost any time we see or read about big national cybersecurity threats, this is usually near the top of that list. This idea that the entire country, or at least big parts of it, could suddenly be plunged into darkness or into freezing cold during winter or sweltering heat during summer. And the fears actually go well beyond personal comfort because we rely on electricity for just about everything. For example, if you've ever seen a gas station in the middle of a power outage, it's usually dark too, which means it's harder to refill a backup generator or gas up a truck that delivers us things like food. Or even think about the next election and how all those voting machines are plugged in. What if the lights went off right when the tabulations were starting? What what happens then? As for how real the threat is, the Department of Homeland Security and FBI recently detailed two years of efforts by Russian government entities to access U.S. power companies. And if that's not good enough for you, this was also the plot of a recent Die Hard film. Virtual terrorism. Hit the reset button. Melt the system just for fun. Hey, it's not a system. It's a country. Now, first, it's not necessarily time to panic and load up the bunker. So for starters, Bruce Willis is only 63 years old, so he'll be protecting us for a little while more. But more importantly, that whole thing about knocking out the electric grid may be a bit overstated, as we report at Axios this morning. First, because hacking the power grid is actually very, very hard to do, which is the reason it hasn't happened yet, even though it feels like virtually everything else in the world and country has been hacked. And there's also a silver lining that's a little bit bigger, which is that there's not necessarily such a thing as the power grid. Seriously. More on that in 15 seconds with Axios cybersecurity reporter Joe Uchel. But first, this. Axios chief technology correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to Get Smarter Faster at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata podcast. We're joined by Axios cybersecurity reporter Joe Uchel. So, Joe, explain this to me. We don't have a power grid? Well, what we have is a series of miniature grids that are connected together in North America. There are five power grids, and each of those is a very complicated bit of machinery. It's not just that we don't have a single point of failure. We don't have a group of 10 or 20 things that is a point of failure. You say we have five, so each one of those isn't a point of failure? Because obviously if 20% of the country got knocked out, that's substantive. It would certainly be a downer. The problem is those grids are not necessarily well organized. They're the product of a number of mergers and acquisitions. They are redundant systems in and of themselves. What you're looking at is less like hacking a grid and more like hacking 3,200 companies that make up the power system in the United States. Interesting you say that because when the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI came out with their report about Russia, you're right, they were talking about attempts to access individual companies, right? It wasn't like, as you say, that they were trying to kind of tap into some central grid somewhere, they were going after individual companies almost one by one. They were going after individual companies. And it's important to note that in that situation, they weren't actually looking to take out the power companies the way that a lot of people portrayed. What it looks like they were doing is a reconnaissance mission. So maybe in the future, they might take out those companies. But right now, it's not a imminent threat. It's something that they were looking at as a down the line thing they might do. 
You wrote today, I had Axios, that it verges almost on the impossible to take down even kind of a mini grid. Is that because you would have to hack and then execute something almost simultaneously within each of those companies? Yeah, more or less. And it's not an easy thing to do, essentially. The grid security, in the sense of the, the major companies that make up the power system, isn't a small task. It's not perfect, but it's also not an easy thing to maneuver one or two companies in. You'd be looking at attacking a number of companies in order to make this work. Are power companies doing a good enough job on protection? In other words, is the real issue that it would be super hard to do? Or is it also that these companies not only recognize the prospective troubles, but are doing an adequate job protecting themselves? When you talk about a group of 3,200 things, some are better than others. Smaller companies are not as well regulated as larger companies. And we are talking about things uh, across a number of countries. We're not just talking about the United States. So it's, it's hard to say that everything is perfect. But it is a redundant system. When you say it's a redundant system, what do you mean? Well, I think as most people are familiar with, you've lived through a power outage, but it didn't cause the entirety of the nation to explode. But Joe, you're right about that. It didn't cause the whole nation to explode. But so I'm thinking of my own town. I live in a small town. Last winter, we had a giant ice storm and it, it knocked the entire town offline. There was power lines all over the streets because we still haven't learned how to bury them. And granted, we were at one town and there was a couple towns around us who were similar. But for all of us, there was no power. So there was no heat. There was no gas because the gas stations were shut. The stores were shut. So there was no food. Now, we were most of us able to get into cars after a couple days and say, they drive 15, 20 miles away and get things like food. But if that 20 miles had been knocked out, if that 300 miles had been knocked out, we would have been stuck. Curious why you don't view it as potentially catastrophic, at least for a large portion of the population. I do believe that it's catastrophic for a smaller area to be attack on the grid as opposed to an attack on an individual power system. When you set the expectations so high that it has to be a nationwide blackout in order to meet the threat that we talk about, you sort of lose track of the smaller thing that is both more realistic and still pretty devastating. You concluded your piece today by saying that we're potentially doing more harm than good by perpetuating the myth of this diehard-like power grid outage scenario. Why more harm than good? It's always good to have people prepared for things. At the same time, it's bad to have people afraid of things. You look at the way people have responded to the constant buzz of breaches and terrorism and the whole weight of what's going on in cybersecurity and national security, it paralyzes people. And for an individual standpoint, we create a fatigue by doing this that doesn't help the situation and ultimately just worsens everyone's attentiveness and just personal well-being. Being fearful of something and being fatigued by something is exactly how I think of the next Die Hard film. So Joe <laughs> Uchel, Axios cybersecurity reporter. My final two on Trump's new sum of all fears and the latest indignity for airline travelers after this. Axios gives you the news and analysis you need to get smarter faster on the most important topics. In our unique smart brevity format, we cover topics from politics to science and media to tech. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now back to the Pro Rata podcast. And now it's time for my final two. And first up is President Trump, who, as we discussed on yesterday's show, is having a pretty horrible, no good, very bad week. But apparently it could become a giant problem for all of us, or at least that's how he framed it this morning in a Fox News interview. If I ever got impeached, I think the market would crash. I think everybody would be very poor. 
Now, from a political perspective, this is basically Trump warning Republicans not to turn on him or warning voters not to elect too many Democrats in November. But from a financial perspective, there's not a huge amount of evidence backing Trump up. So for starters, the stock market actually climbed substantially during the last time we had a president being impeached. Now, sure, Bill Clinton wasn't the deregulator in chief that Trump's become, but he was pretty business friendly and his impeachment did begin in the midst of a massive bull market. And that bull market continued through his impeachment. Now, some Trump supporters may point out last November, which is when the market began crashing on what proved to be an erroneous ABC News report about Trump instructing Michael Flynn to make contact with Russian officials during the 2016 campaign, which, again, wasn't true, but which would have set the stage quickly for impeachment. But what's important to remember about that is that the tax bill still wasn't law. And it is now law and will remain that way whether the Oval Office is filled by a President Trump or a President Pence. And finally, there is this ongoing conventional wisdom that we're going to get a blue wave in November, which would hurt Trump's ability to make economic policy. But the markets don't care. They keep rising anyway. So the bottom line here is that Trump's claim is a lot like a stock bubble in that there isn't all that much substance beneath it. Finally, United Airlines may soon begin charging more to get a window or aisle seat in economy. Seriously. That's according to comments made by United Executive Scott Kirby at a recent conference in Denver. And let's just all agree it's terrible and the latest indignity for travelers who have already suffered through lots of indignities. Yeah, sure, it's a first world problem, but it doesn't mean we should ignore it, particularly when it means that a family of three, for example, may need to pay up just to sit together. Here's how Kirby explained it. Quote, if you go to a concert and one of you wants to sit up front and the other three want to sit in the nosebleeds, do you think you should all pay the nosebleed seat price to sit up front? Yeah, Scott, that is a very bad analogy. You already have front row seats. They're called first class. This is about charging more money for some of the nosebleeds. Not because it's right, but because you can get away with it. And we're done. Big thanks for listening, whether on Apple, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. And to my producers, Adam Gracia and Tim Shovers. Be sure to follow us all day at Axios.com and sign up for my pro rata newsletter at signup.axios.com. Have a great National Sponge Cake Day, and we'll be back on Monday with another pro rata podcast.